the Jewish views on the New Year's Honours List. We meet Andrew Kaufman, MBE, awarded for services to Holocaust education. Uprooted, the latest book by author Lynn Julius, which explores Jews in Arab countries forced to flee. And the Linky Initiative. We meet one of a group of siblings trying to help homeless people this winter. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Donald Trump appears to have threatened to cut off American aid to the Palestinian Authority. The US president used Twitter to write that the Palestinians get hundreds of millions of dollars each year, but that they don't want to negotiate a long overdue peace treaty with Israel. Mr. Trump's announcement late last year that the United States will move its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, thus recognizing the city as Israel's capital, infuriated Muslims across the Middle East. And amid the current heightened tension, the Knesset has passed a law which bars the Israeli government from relinquishing control over any part of Jerusalem without the approval of at least 80 of the legislature's 120 members. Most of the international community doesn't recognise Israeli sovereignty over East Jerusalem, which was captured in the 1967 Middle East War. Two Jewish families from New York and Florida were identified as among the 10 US citizens who died in a small plane crash in northwest Costa Rica. Bruce and Irene Steinberg from Scarsdale and their three teenage sons and Florida doctors Mitchell and Leslie Weiss, together with their 19-year-old daughter, were killed. Their respective rabbis told how both families were active members of the Jewish community. Eleven Holocaust survivors, a 101-year-old war veteran, an impresario known as the Grand Dame of Anglo-Jewish art, and the chairman of the Association of Jewish Refugees, are among those who feature in the New Year honours. Those recognised include 90-year-old Chaim Olmer, together with fellow camp survivors Harry Bibring, who's 93, and 85-year-old Janine Weber. Lieutenant Colonel Mordant Cohen, the most senior Jewish officer who served in World War II, still alive, receives an MBE. Lillian Hochhauser gets a CBE for services to arts and cultural relations, and Andrew Kaufman of the AJR is recognised for his work in the field of Holocaust education. And we'll be hearing from Andrew Kaufman in the programme. And finally, a record 3.6 million tourists visited Israel in 2017, among them 185,000 British people. It's not only an all-time record, but also a 25% increase on the previous year. And Jerusalem was the most popular destination for 78% of those tourists. Your News Roundup this week. Andrew's got the sport. Thank you very much, Viv. Joe Jacobson says he's hoping his Wiccan Wanderers side can deliver an FA Cup upset at the weekend. Hosting championship side Preston, the 31-year-old defender says his teammates will take confidence from their performance at Spurs last season, which saw them beaten by an injury-time winner. Elsewhere... Dudi Seller's first competition in Qatar was a short-lived affair after he suffered a first-round defeat to the world number 35, Fernando Vestasco. His build-up to the Australian Open will though continue in Canberra, where he looks to defend his title at the Canberra Challenger. And finally, Avram Grant's latest role has taken him to India, with him being appointed as an advisor at North East United for the remainder of the Indian Super League. The former Israel, Chelsea and West Ham manager is a long-term friend of the club's owner, John Abraham. 
You can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sport and read the full Joe Jacobson interview at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to the first episode of The Jewish Views for 2018. I'm Phil Dave and let's begin the new year with a look over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. And joining me to go through it, my my, what a treat we have. We have Features Editor Fran Wolfish. Hi. Uh, uh, hello, Fran. And we also have Supplements Editor Bridget Grant. Hello. Hello, Bridget. Do we say Happy New Year? If you, or do you say Shana Tava then? Is I'm it the sure. same? No, not quite the same. Not really. No, no. <laughs> but one way or another, we know what you meant and we're grateful for your greetings. How about we glance over the first front page of 2018 and the headline that reads the best of British 11 Holocaust survivors honoured by the Queen. It's a fantastic recognition, I think, of these Holocaust survivors. Year by year, we are unfortunately losing this generation. And I think they are quite deserving of these awards that come around every year. Just to go through them, for the MBE, we have Bernd Koshland, Jane Salter, Dr. Martin Adam Stern and Hannah Lewis. And we also have a Sunderland-based centenarian, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mordaunt Cohen, who actually served in the Second World War. And then we also have recipients of the Medalist of the Order of the British Empire. They include Chaim Harry Ulmer, Harry Bibring, Harry Spiro, Joseph Pearl, Frieda Weinman, Leslie Kleiman and Janine Weber. So I think it is important that we recognise their efforts to not only remember the Holocaust to tell their stories, but also to pass on the lessons of the Holocaust to the next generation. And they're an amazing resource that the younger generation can look up to. And so to be recognised in this way really does kind of bring together everything that they've they've done over these years to ensure that we never forget the Holocaust. Well, it's one of the highest ways, I suppose, possible that this generation can be recognised for not only the suffering they've gone through, but the efforts in which they go through to ensure that it's not forgotten. And one of the, the troubles, one of the questions that constantly comes up on this programme is what is going to happen after that generation is around no more because we won't have first-hand accounts. Committing it to, to film is is something that we've, you know, we started to do. I mean, largely when, when uh, Spielberg started the whole filming the testimonies after Schindler's List, the problem is there are already, there are doubters and, and people who question the Holocaust even while there are still people alive. So you are absolutely right in how do you bottle, keep, you know, inject the importance, the significance of this period of history, of our history, when these people are no longer here. And, you know, it's quite frightening to think that you're looking at these people's ages, they're in their 90s. Thank God some of them have lived to a ripe old age to be able to tell the story many times. And children to actually have, if you see these people when they talk about it in schools, that they obviously they respond to the interest from the students, from the children. It's overwhelming. I think you're completely right. You know, we can't we have to hold on to these stories for as long as possible. Well, here's, every hope, generation. here's hoping that the uh, honours awarded to them in the New Year's Honours list will go some way to contributing to that. Now, having a look inside the paper, page three this week, BBC drama accused of gratuitous Israel slur. 
Yes, McMafia. This is the the much talked about, much promoted over the holiday period drama series that is on um, BBC. I mean, what was interesting, I, I mentioned this this morning to the office that immediately caught the eye of most Jewish people who picked up a newspaper or watched television because the first thing you saw was the wearing of yarmulkes or kippah in the central image that they put out to promote it. So they obviously wanted to drive home the fact that it was it had Jewish content. It has more than Jewish content. It has Jewish central figures. It has Russian Jewish central figures largely. And it looks at the corruption that some of them allegedly... I mean, interestingly, the author is uh, Misha Glenny, who is an established and highly regarded writer and journalist broadcaster has written many books and worked with some and is, is obviously a great talent and experienced person it's just in my opinion and uh, only mine it, I found that the opening was quite dull and then on top of that there are lots of Israeli references that didn't exactly make me feel comfortable I do agree that we cannot sit and guard every representation of Jewish people on television or in film because if we get upset about that then everyone else has the right to be upset about the way that they are portrayed it just does feel that that the way it looks as though we're involved in a, a presented as involved in a lot of corruption and that made me feel uncomfortable and some of the Russian accents are appalling Okay, well, we learned about a pledge towards the end of last year that the BBC was going to up their way in the Jewish content and other religions and minorities as well. And they are doing that with a documentary that will air next Tuesday, showing how strictly orthodox pioneer Jews will relocate to Canvey Island or have already done so. Yes, this is the story of the, the Canvey Island Jews. There's obviously been a large influx of Jews from the Haredi community, particularly Stamford Hill, especially, who have moved over to Canvey Island to establish a new community elsewhere. And they've uh, settled on Canvey Island, obviously with their families growing. A lot of families are, are very large. They have in excess of eight, 10 children, and they can't afford London anymore. So they have up their roots and they've moved over to Canvey Island and that's where they're hoping to bring together this new Hasidic community and it does seem to be growing. This documentary which is going to be on on Tuesday on BBC One essentially looks at how they've managed with that move transplanting essentially you know where they have been quite comfortable in Stamford Hill moving over to a place where these people probably haven't seen orthodox or ultra-orthodox Jews before so it's an interesting look at how they integrate or not, don't integrate into the community that already lives there certainly will and also let's not forget that Jews we've said this so many times before but Jews we are a people who do wander about we do move from place to place and it will be interesting to see say in 20 30 years time if there is a well and truly established Jewish Orthodox community of Canvey Island how it turns out. I'd love to talk about this more but I do want to try and fit one more story in before we run well and truly out of time Ex-Beatle will play in Tel Aviv Sir Ringo Starr How wonderful, how wonderful in the light of Lord withdrawing from the stage of Tel Aviv to have Sir Ringo Starr performing or he's going to be there in the spring 
it's great. Uh, Paul McCartney's played there. The Stones have played there. All the people that I love have played there, actually. And it's interesting. And all the people we don't care about. And all the people, exactly. <laughs> and all the people whose songs we can't sing haven't. But still, no, that's not true entirely. But the, the, the main thing is that it's very nice in the light of all this fuss about uh, Rabbi Bater in America placing an ad in the New York Times condemning Lord for pulling out of her Israel performance and on the back of that to know that one of our beloved Beatles is going to perform there. Well look there might be some who say that it is more important from our community's point of view to focus on those who are going to play there and who are going to demonstrate that Israel is not necessarily the big bad monster that an awful lot of ignorant people believe it to be and therefore it's just a very nice thing to hear. So, Sir Ringo, we salute you, sir. Thank you very much indeed, both. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. But please don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London. Or you can always read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, here we are, 2018, a new year, and that usually means, as we've established, New Year's Honours List, and it's fair to say that the community has done rather well this time round. As you've been hearing, 11 Holocaust survivors and a 101-year-old war veteran were among those members of British jury to receive accolades, as was our first guest. Andrew Kaufman is the chairman of the Association of Jewish Refugees, and he has received an MBE for services to Holocaust education. And I'm delighted to say that we can speak to Andrew now. Andrew, first of all, Mazelsoff, first and foremost on your accolade. And can I ask, when did you first hear that you were going to become an MBE? Well, I received a letter about three or four weeks ago. The envelope said cabinet office on it. And I thought, oh, okay. I'd been asked to recommend a friend for an honour, and I assumed it was a reference for him. So when I opened the envelope, I was um, shocked to say the least. <laughs> and can you just describe that moment, that feeling? You know, you said that you were shocked, but when you realised what had happened and what was more importantly what was going to happen, how did it feel? Basically, I immediately thought of my parents who were both refugees from Germany and how they would have felt about it. I felt sad that they're no longer with us. And I thought, well, maybe they're looking down on me and be and are really very proud. And of course, the second thing was, I feel that this honour is, is for the Association of Jewish Refugees, the AJR, because that's where I've um, done all my most of my charitable work anyway, for most of my life. Well, I'm pleased you mentioned the AJR because, as you say, that that is where you've done most of your charitable work. For those who might not be completely aware of what Association of Jewish Refugees actually does, would you give us a little insight into your work and the organisation's work? Yes, we. Uh, I think there are two main things. Firstly and foremost, we look after refugees from Nazi oppression, mostly from Germany and Austria, but also from Czechoslovakia, the former Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and other other European countries, who are now in their 80s, 90s, and I think we have 40 members who are over 100 years old. And we look after them from a social welfare point of view and try and keep them in their own homes as long as possible. That's our main work, and we still have about... 14 or 1500 members of that generation. You see, there is going to be 
a couple of people I suspect listening to this who would think to themselves, well, is there going to be a need for AJR in a couple of decades time when sadly there is a strong chance that that generation will no longer be with us? What happens to AJR in the future? Well, indeed, that's the question everyone asks me. And the answer to that is really is the second limb of what we do, which is that we try to promote Holocaust education. And that's what I got my MBE for. We basically finance charities, mostly Jewish charities, who are involved in promoting education about the Holocaust. How does that tie in, say, with the work that you do? Because tell us a bit about you, because obviously you are the one who received the award, the accolade, and therefore we want to know about you. Well, I'm the chairman of the organisation. We have uh, nine trustees and I chair that body. And certainly on the education side, I passionately believe that we need to educate our children all about the Holocaust and its implications. Uh, sadly, the world hasn't learned enough. And sadly, there are many children growing up in this country who know nothing about it. And we need to educate both the children and also the educators. So we try to find charities and museums who are going to promote this. And we then endeavour to finance projects for these charities and museums. Now, getting back to the MBE itself, you, am I right in thinking it's not just you, but one does not know where one receives the nomination from. Is that right? It's anonymous, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. But even even so, have you got an have you got an idea of who might have done it or not? Well, well? it may have been a, <laughs> a colleague of mine at the AJR. It may have been someone I know in government who is very much involved in uh, Holocaust education. So I suspect that's the case. But as you say, it's totally anonymous. Apparently, there are many, many people involved in vetting applications. So I'm just very grateful and very proud. What happens now, though? Because you haven't actually got the MBE, have you yet? It's presented to you at a ceremony. Indeed. It will be within the next seven months at a ceremony, which will be held either at Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle. And what are your expectations of that? Have you ever been to either royal residence before? I was very lucky. My wife and I were invited to a garden party this year. So we went to Buckingham Palace. I've never been officially to Windsor Castle. So we'll see. Very, very <laughs> excited. Very excited. Anyway. Practically old hats. And how are you planning on celebrating this remarkable achievement? Well, we'll we will go we will go there with uh, my wife and our two children, and then we'll we'll all go out and have a family lunch somewhere nice. Uh, we will uh, maybe include the grandchildren as well if it's possible. <laughs> I like it <laughs> only only maybe, <laughs> but of course no, but of course, but of course, people don't realise that these particular events are obviously held in honour of several people who were honoured, and re- regrettably there are restrictions in place, isn't there? Yes, you can take three guests, but they're a little bit flexible. I know a friend of mine who has three children and he got special permission to bring all three, including his wife. Well, here's hoping that your grandchildren can be included in that. Fingers (laughs) crossed for that. My my 10-year-old really says, really, you should take me, Papa. (laughs) (laughs) What are you hoping to get out of now having an MBE to your name? One would assume that that gives you some sort of gravitas, some sort of status. And therefore, what are you planning on doing with this newfound status? 
Well, it's early days, isn't it? I, I only heard about it four or five days ago, so officially. <laughs> I think I, what I really want to do is to promote the activities of the AJR. And this, this radio interview is obviously one of the areas that, that we can get more publicity. Because as you say, everyone says, well, what are you going to do in 15, 20 years time? The AJR will be very active. There's also the the second generation to think about. We do look after some members of the second generation, so my generation, who are now coming into their 70s, who may need uh, support as well. So there's plenty of work to do. I think that maybe having an MBE will give more status to the AJR itself. Indeed, one of our trustees is a, is a, is a knight of the realm, Sir Eric Reich, who is chairman of the Kinder Transport. The Kinder Transport is part of our organization. So I think we are gradually getting better known. We were to begin with, just a, a small organisation in northwest London. We're now a national organisation. We have, for example, eight social workers dotted all over England and Scotland. So we help our members in the whole country. And the more people who get to know about the AJR, the more we can help members, because believe it or not, there's still some refugees in this country and survivors who don't know about the AJR. So I'm really pleased to be able to publicise the, the works of the AJR through this interview. It's our very great pleasure. And I think I speak for all of us when I say Mazeltov again. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. And also thank you very much for all the work you do in trying to educate people when it comes to the Holocaust. Andrew Kaufman, MBE, awarded on the New Year's Honours list. Thank you. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News and still to come on this edition. Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and comedian Rachel Krieger. And they'll be discussing whether or not a recent bill that the Knesset have passed in order to safeguard Jerusalem as an entire city was a sensible move in light of the fact that it can now probably no longer be used to negotiate a peace deal. Plus, also, as community editor Diana Toman is away, Harley Baptiste will be speaking to Josh Adley, one of the founders of the Linky Initiative, and that is set up in order to try and help homeless people this winter. But first, when it comes to Jewish heritage, quite a lot of the time in this country anyway, we tend to think more about the Ashkenazi heritage of our people, those who came perhaps from Eastern Europe and other such places. However, what about those who had to flee from Arab countries? Because, of course, there was a wide association with the Arab lands for many thousands of years for Jewish people. However, obviously, during troubled times, they were all forced to flee, and now there is virtually no trace at all. And that is what author Lynn Julius has explored in her latest book, Uprooted. It looks at Jews who had to flee Arab countries. And arts editor Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us by speaking to Lynn. Lynn, you're a, are you a historian or, or a lecturer. Tell, tell me a bit about yourself, your background. About 12 years ago, I founded an organisation representing Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. My parents actually are refugees from Jewish refugees from Iraq. Both of them were born in Baghdad, and both of them had to leave 
Iraq in 1950, and I was born in England. So that's where your interest in the the Jews of the Middle East and North Africa had begun. Have you researched it? I mean, I understand you've spent a lot of time. Have you? You've been to the area, and you presumably you've been researching. No, I haven't been anywhere near Iraq. I've only been to uh, one Arab country. I've been to Iran actually, but I haven't been to Arab countries to research this question. In fact, I don't think it would be that fruitful to do so. Probably be too dangerous at this stage. It would be too dangerous. I mean, with the possible exception of Tunisia and Morocco, it's not probably advisable. <laughs> Are there any so, Jews of your or your family still there or did everybody come? No, no, no. Everybody's left. Uh, there are only five Jews left in Iraq of a um, 1948 population of about 140,000. Right. Gosh, that's incredible, isn't it? So you decide, your family decided to come. And what made you decide to sort of look, look back over your shoulder? Was it a need to, to delve back into your history, um, the history of your family, and to, to write about it? Well, there was a bit of that. It is a, a story that sort of haunted me throughout my life, if you like. As a teenager, I remember that my family were really quite anxious because my four grandparents were still trapped in Iraq and they, they weren't allowed to leave together with the uh, remaining Jews. Uh, there were only about 3,000 Jews left towards the end of the 60s, early 70s. None of them could get passports. Saddam Hussein had begun his rise to power and, as you know, the Jews lived under a reign of terror there were executions, there were people arrested off the streets, they disappeared without warning, and it was a terrible time for the remaining Jews in Iraq. And my father, I remember him trying frantically to get my relatives out of Iraq. He was writing letters, contacting MPs, uh, doing everything possible. In the end, they did leave, they managed to get passports, but the Jews of Iraq, the remaining Jews of Iraq, were basically hostages. And about 2,000 of them managed to escape illegally through northern Iraq, through Kurdistan into Iran, which was then friendly to Israel. And this story actually is, is not well known. And in fact, they are... What happened to the Jews of Iraq happened throughout the Middle East to all the Jewish communities. And you will find very few Jews still left in these countries. So your book is, is titled Uprooted. And presumably yeah. these are the people that have been uprooted or, or who has been uprooted from where? Who, who are you focusing on in the book? Well, I'm focusing on all the Jewish communities in 10 Arab countries. These communities have extremely long established. Many of them go back to biblical times. For instance, the Iraqi Jewish community goes back to Babylonian times, 2,600 years ago. Uh, the Yemeni community, likewise. The North African communities, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, they go back at least 2,000 years. So these are very long established communities, but overnight almost, or in one generation, they all came to an end. This is all the Jewish communities. Were they, yes. were they particularly orthodox communities or were we just talking about just by virtue of being a Jew? Well, in those countries, 
everybody was quite traditional. There wasn't a sort of secular enlightenment until quite recently, until the colonial era. So the, these Jews were traditional. They were more or less religious, if you like, I mean, in the sense that they observed all, all the Jewish holidays and they kept, they had a, a sort of vibrant communal life, if you like. Are you able to tell the story that from a historical perspective or have you injected your own, your own angle, if you like? Well, there's a little bit of me and my family in the book, but I tried not to make it personal. I try to be as dispassionate as possible. I do also talk about the good times, you know, which were mainly under the colonial era when Jews were actually doing very well in these countries. They were prominent in trade, in commerce, in the theatre, in literature, in music. And there's no denying the fact that the colonial era was probably a golden age. When the, um, the, your family and others from other, other countries that you've mentioned were uprooted, where did they tend to replant themselves? Did, did sort of certain communities all up and go to a certain place? Yes, well, there were about 850,000 Jews who were uprooted from Arab countries. doesn't include another, say, 100 or 200,000 from uh, other Muslim countries like Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, but the, of those 850,000 refugees from Arab countries, about 650,000 went to Israel. So that's the majority of them. Yes. It's funny how we hear so much about the uh, about the, the, the Palestinian cause and about how they believe they were uprooted, but we don't hear very much about in the press about uh, all the Jews that were uprooted and, not, and, and less time ago. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And you're coming to speak and we can hear you at Hampstead Garden Suburb, I believe. That's right. The official launch of my book takes place at Hampstead Garden Suburb Synagogue on the 24th of January. It's an event jointly organised by my own organisation, Harif and Spyro Arc. And please come along and I will be interviewed by Saul Stadka, who's going to be a very lively and uh, well-informed interviewer, I think. It's probably going to give me quite a hard time. <laughs> Good, that's what the people like to see. And anybody can come, anybody can get tickets anybody at the door. Yes, it's the 24th of January at 8 o'clock at Hampstead Garden Suburb Synagogue. Author Lynn Julius speaking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her book Uprooted, which looks at Jews having to flee the Arab lands. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And don't forget that we always love to hear your Jewish views. Do take the time to send us an email, studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can always contact us via social media. You can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views, or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Coming up in just a moment will be our rabbinic thought for the week, which comes from Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue. But before that, I think it's fair to say that a large part of what we as a community do is tikkun olam, repair the world, make it a better place. And also we are very conscious of tzedakah, charity, giving. 
Well, a new initiative called the Linky Initiative has been set up by a group of Northwest London siblings, and it's designed to try and help the homeless. Our community editor, Diana Toman, is currently away, and so our very own Harley Baptiste has been speaking to Josh Adley, one of the founders of the Linky Initiative. And Harley started by asking Josh to tell us exactly what the new initiative is all about. The Link Initiative is about helping the homeless, essentially. We're working with shelters around London and then also getting essential supplies out to rough sleepers on the streets. What we do in its first stage, what we've decided to do is set up a a website and an Amazon wish list, which we might turn into our own store, where people can buy items, essential items direct, and they don't have to worry about being in when they get delivered. They get delivered to us. We store it, sort through everything, and then we take it out where it's needed. So be that shelters or onto the streets to rough sleepers so um, it's kind of a way of people being able to get involved with the community and choosing what items they want to to donate but not having to worry about taking out themselves or being in for the delivery and and where did it all come from I'm, i'm sure it wasn't just a spur of the moment sort of idea Homelessness has always been something that I feel has affected me. Like I've all, as in, in the sense that I've always kind of had such sympathy for people in that situation. Growing up, I used to donate to St. Mungo's. It was always the one kind of charity that I, I felt most passionate about. But then it was middle of December. I was going to cinema with my wife. We happened to get there early. And a guy came up to us on the street and said, do you know where there's a homeless shelter nearby? And I didn't know. And I was like, oh, no, I don't know. Let me ask. And I asked around and no one knew anywhere. So we bought him a meal and we kind of sat and spoke with him for half an hour while we were kind of Googling what to do. And it seemed that there was nowhere that you could go unless you were referred to that night. So the best thing we were able to do was to kind of fill in the Street Link app, which kind of where you can report people who are on the street. So someone from the council can go and, and try and help them if they stay in that position for the next day or so, if they're, you know, if they're camping out in the same place. And then we referred him to Homeless Action in Barnet, which was going to be open the next morning where he could get breakfast and a shower and those kind of things and referred to a night shelter for that night. So I just felt quite helpless. I went home that night, felt really guilty about how cold it was. Didn't really know the best thing to do. I kind of filled my car with loads of warm supplies, went back to where he was to try and find him, to give him them, but I couldn't see him. Drove around for a couple of hours, but couldn't find him. And it was after that, I felt like I wanted to do something. So from there, I kind of decided to do what was initially just going to be a a one-off event in between Christmas and New Year, kind of rallied around friends and family to kind of get as much supplies as we could. And I spoke to a few shelters about what it was they most needed and went out with a load of friends on the 28th of December to three shelters in London and then across the streets of London Bridge, Camden, Mornington Crescent, Euston, King's Cross to deliver to people. And then from there, you know, it was such a successful day and it was about bringing everyone together, but obviously it was rewarding, but also learned loads and met loads of interesting people. And having spoken to the shelters, it was clear that Christmas, they have quite a lot of people, people, you know, think to give at that time, but it's actually January onwards, January to March when they're most in need because everyone kind of forgets about it. So we decided to set up an initiative to do something once a month, at least, hopefully more than that as well. And that's kind of where it came from. It all kind of came about very quickly on Boxing Day and from the 28th onwards. Fantastic. And on that day, correct me if I'm wrong, I've seen on it that you raised about £700 worth in supplies uh, through the Amazon wish list, which is how you guys are, are collecting everything. Yeah, so it's actually, we've raised that amount. I think it's now probably closer to a thousand, but we've raised that since that day. So on the 28th itself, we had, I don't know, monetary values because everything was purely brought to us or donated or we collected it, but we had about 80, 80 black sacks or loads and loads of stuff. And it was since then where we set up the Amazon wish list. And since then, we've raised around, um, yeah, anywhere between 700 and a thousand pounds so far, which is amazing because, you know, we haven't really 
done much press so we haven't really properly launched it's only been going a week but it's great to know that people can just very easily log on and and choose an item that they think would be most useful and and buy it and people are starting to do it already it's important really to to have this sedaka in parts of our lives and people in the community giving to charity and and how important do you think it is as the community to give our support out there to those who have none themselves yeah, it's, it's obviously vital. I think that, you know, from the day when we went out to meet the shelters, you know, we thought we were doing a good thing. And then you meet all the, the volunteers who give up their lives or, you know, give up a large portion of their lives to helping the community and those around them. And it's, it's, it's so inspiring. But, you know, it's so easy just to take everything for granted and forget. And, you know, I'm definitely someone who, who you know, falls into that category occasionally. You do just take for granted that you've got a warm bed and, you know, you're, you know, you've got dinner on the table or whatever it is, um, a full fridge when you get home. But you just forget that there's people out there who, you know, sometimes it might be no, through no fault of their own or we don't know their circumstances or their background. But, you know, who's choosing to be on the streets in this cold weather? It, it's horrendous. So, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important that everyone just rallies around. And if everyone does their bit, you know, if everyone I knew gave five pounds, then, you know, that would be an, an incredible amount to go to the homeless. So I'm sure if we can start to get people that we don't know to get involved, then, you know, we're really going to, you know, have a, have a great impact. And although... It's always good to, to try and help with these with long term solutions, things like these, although short term, they really do have an amazing positive effect on these people's lives who a lot of them just go most of their lives go years and years and years with absolutely nothing from from anybody. So it, it, it really does help their mental health as well, uh, besides just the situation that they are they are in. I think what was interesting is when we went out onto the streets, you know, whilst the majority of people did want the warm clothing we were able to give, some of them just wanted a conversation. And, you know, we sat on the floor and had a 30 minute chat with one guy who literally just wanted to have a rant. And I think he wanted to have people that would listen to him and, and get it off his chest. And, for, you know, if that made his night better, then great. And you're right, it is a very short term solution. And whilst we, we like the idea of being able to help in the short term and get out there and make someone's night a bit better, we're also in the background, we're going to start coming up with what we can do in the long term to help as well. So it's kind of working both in parallel. Fantastic. And where do you see Linky going from here? Where, where, what's the next step? What's the next stage? It's still early days. I think that what I'd love to do is well, what we're working on is setting up a, a really a core group of a, you know a board, as it were, of around kind of eight or so people that are going to get involved. And I think for me, likely the first three to six months is just going to be about establishing relationship with shelters, finding out as much as we can about what it is they need, when, you know, how we can best get it to them, how we can best store stuff and getting the word out there about the wish list or if we turn that into a store on our website. So I think at first it's going to just be about growing and getting as much of the items as we can and getting them to as many people as we can but that's short term and that's in the first six months i think beyond that this sort of back end of this year we'd love to have a few other projects you know whether that's who knows a pop-up store or whether we work with specific shelters on specific community projects i don't know yet and it's something that we need to kind of discuss as a team but i think that like i said we're not gonna you're not gonna run before we walk we need to kind of get everything in place before we start but one thing we definitely like to do is work with some local businesses and you know if any of the listeners know anyone who owns a company who might be able to help or be it helping get our name out there or they you know who knows they manufacture toiletries or they manufacture sleeping bags and they can help i think we'd love to put some partnerships in place with people who can uh, who can offer something one of the founders of the linky initiative josh adley speaking to our very own harley baptist there and if you think that you might like to help or you want more information then go to our website jewishviews.co.uk
You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and comedian Rachel Krieger. The subject for this edition is based on an item we heard in the news with Vivian earlier on. Israel's parliament has passed a law requiring a supermajority to relinquish control over any part of Jerusalem, a move that could hamper the city's division as part of a peace plan. The question is, was the Knesset right to pass this law, and do we believe that Jerusalem should remain as one, or should it be considered as part of a peace deal? Well, let's start with you, David. You often talk of your love of Israel on this program. Do you feel about the Knesset's decision on this occasion that they were right? To be honest, Clive, I don't think they are. I think if there's going to be peace, they're going to have to give. They're going to have to give away. They're going to have to make concessions. And it just cannot carry on as it is, completely in deadlock, total impasse. And I believe by creating these new rules, these new um, laws coming out of the Knesset, it's only going to hamper and stiffen the resolve of those who are hostile to Israel. So in answer to your question, I actually think they're not correct. What do you think, Rachel? I think when you make a definitive statement, it doesn't allow for debate and it doesn't allow for people to make have a discussion across the table and give and take. Jerusalem is so important to so many different cultures and however much the Jewish community may feel it's ours, it's historically ours, and that's not true, of course, of everybody in the community. The situation, as David said, is so complex and the deadlock is so frightening that I think making a law and making a definitive statement is quite a dangerous move. So surely what they should have said, the Knesset should have said is, let's make Jerusalem an open city and a city that's there for everyone. Do you think whichever way they make this, whether it's an open city, as Clive has just said, or whether they go with this law, there will ever be peace? Because I don't think the Palestinians want peace. The Palestinian Authority, Hamas, Hezbollah, I don't think they want peace under any circumstances. So it doesn't matter what Israel does or does not do, peace will not be there. Isn't Hezbollah doesn't want peace, but Hezbollah, you could say, some people would say on the other side, and let's be fair about this, the other people on the other side would say, well, of course, the Israeli government behaves as though it were never wanted peace. They, they, don't, they don't make any effort to come towards the Palestinians. Maybe this sucks. This government doesn't, but a pr- previous governments have tried over the years, and we've had the talks. Oh, we know that. And they've they've agreed to give things away. When Arafat was there, they he asked some for something, and they agreed to it. And then he came back with something else, and they agreed to it. And then he came back with something else, and they agreed to it. And it's just ongoing. Well, he they did they- finally agree to something, and then he got he got very scared afterwards because it was all agreed. I mean, everyone shook hands on it, and everybody all over the world. And then was he was threatened it. by his own people. Yes. Well, for me, in this situation, the politicians are the scary ones on both sides. Because if you look at the lives of ordinary people, ordinary people just want to live an ordinary life. To get up in the morning, to have their kids in school, to go about their job. And 
those are the people really mm. who could be making the sensible decisions about what might work because they li they're living it. But the issue is that it is the politicians, whether we like it or not, whether we've got a, a large opinion or a small opinion, it is the politicians which is really just a handful. It can be 20, 30 people who are shaking hands, and that reflects the lives of 7 million citizens mm. who may not agree. So by saying Jerusalem is going to be an open city, great. The, even, the, even the Guardian will probably enjoy printing that. Mm. But the problem is that whilst the Arabs may just smile at the success that such a statement might bring them, in the short term, the people of Israel will go crazy. So well, where is they? the fine that's, line? That's a very interesting comment, because will they go? Because I know a lot of Israelis who would say, oh, we wish we had people like Rabin back in charge, because unfortunately he can't, he's no longer with us. But nonetheless, if we had those sort of leaders in Israel, perhaps the Palestinians, the not Hezbollah, but the Palestinian sort of government, well, government, would come towards them and that something could be done. Well, he wanted, as you remember, to cede almost 98% by way of concession back to the Palestinians, back to their cause. But that's not good enough for them because at the end of the day, I think everybody knows they don't only want Jerusalem. They want Tel Aviv, Haifa, Netanya and everywhere else. Which is back to what I said earlier on. They want everything. So no matter what you give them, they still want more and more and more. So well, they, there's no way they're you, going to have peace. If, 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 if you, you were on the other side, you might well say the same thing because the Israelis at the moment are going into that part of of what we one would hope would one day be Palestine, they're still building in there and building... The West Bank and places like yes. that. Yeah. Are you, Clive, in favour of a two-state solution? Yeah, absolutely. So am I. I so Are am I. I. I mean, I but I, well, my, yeah. problem, my problem is I can't see it working. But so I'd say that we're sitting here in England having mm. that conversation. It doesn't affect us in the same way. I mean, it might affect your business in some way, but I, I'm, it doesn't affect us in that we're not living there. So, But often no. when you talk to Israeli Arabs, I've spoken to a number of Israeli Arabs, Arabs over the years, they don't want to be ruled by anybody else other than an Israeli government because they, they, they've got their houses, they've got their jobs, they've got their education. I mean, we, you, if you go into a hospital, you've got Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs working as doctors, nurses and mm. surgeons and everything else. They don't want to change that. Well, that proves, doesn't it, that it could work. It because could if work. Israeli Arabs feel that way... That's under an Israeli government. Under an Israeli it. government. Then there should be those Israelis who choose to live in what might be Palestine, mm. a state mm. called Palestine, that they would feel the same way about Palestine. But I'd oh. venture that that's quite a subjective experience that you've had because you've spoken to people that you've come across. Mm. It's not that you've gone out into outlying villages. I mean, maybe you have, and I'm judging. No, I have. But gone into outline outline villages, villages or to people, people who've who've experienced dissatisfaction mm. or who don't feel that they have equality because there are plenty of people like that, you know, from when I've travelled touring and performing in Israel and the people that I've met, not everybody would agree with that statement. But there has to be, there has to be, in the end, there has to be an agreement because it's not good for either the Israelis or the Palestinians for this to go on and on and on. Well, that's a matter of opinion, Clive. I agree with you. But I bet there's some people sitting in the West Bank and in Beirut and wherever they run their affairs from thinking the last thing they ever want is peace because this continual state of war is part of their fabric. This is how they've been brought up. This is how they're born. But if one's fair, you've got to use the same argument. There must be some Israelis who feel the same way. 
Yeah, I, I think at the moment it's a state of impasse. But if you look back, Clive, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, this ongoing discussion, it started in Oslo. In fact, it started in, in Washington when Arafat and, and Yitzhak Rabin shook hands. And they actually probably had a begrudging admiration for each other. But it didn't happen. It didn't work. And unfortunately, in Israel, too, they've got their crazy people, as you can see what happened to Mr. Rabin. Mm. So where... Are they going to shake the hands? The American government, of course, that's their, their, that will be their big number. If any president can pull it off, he'll go down into history. That will be his legacy. Which won't, um, which won't happen under the current president. Now he's speaking about withdrawing the funding not. for the Palestinians. But, but, but I'm of the opinion, I really am, that I cannot see peace in our lifetime. Well, this, I think, is incredibly depressing. It is, mm. but it's factual, in my opinion, anyway. Well, you say in your lifetime, are you saying it in your children's lifetime or your grandchildren's lifetime or your great-grandchildren's lifetime? Is there any possibility of some sort of peace and a two-state solution? I hope there would be. I, I believe sometime down the line it's going to happen. I would hope to. I would hope that too. But I think with the way that the Palestinian children, some of the Palestinian children are being educated from a very young age. And perhaps, and I don't know, maybe some of the more orthodox Israeli Jewish children are being educated from a very young age. They won't be peace at all. I think where there's a bit of hope around the peace projects that are sprouting up all over the place, for example, the hand-in-hand schools are amazing in Israel, which teach Israeli Jewish and Israeli Arab children together in that. a school. And when difficult things come up, they have to find difficult paths through it. It's much harder to hate somebody you know. And so that's the point of mm. those schools is But then the children together. are finding the difficult paths themselves, they aren't are. they, in these schools? I've seen so that. So there's that a lot really of projects like well. that. I'll tell you what was interesting. I don't know if any of you saw the Alternativity, Banksy's production that he did on no. the other side of the no. wall with Palestinian children and young adults. It was a, a version of the Nativity, a musical version directed by Danny Boyle, I think. Hopefully I'm correct in that. And it was shown, or it's on iPlayer. It was shown mm. on the BBC over Christmas and it was really fascinating because it caused a lot of debate amongst people who saw it about whether the rights and wrongs it depicted things like checkpoints and some of the hardships that they experienced and I thought it was amazing I thought it was an incredible piece of work because bringing art and expression to people gives them hope and gives them aspirations through creativity through sharing through communication that's what helps people move forward from difficult places and just let's be desperately honest with each other. Do any of you, well, you've more or less said it actually, but let's hear it from each of you. Do any of you believe that in the foreseeable future, the future that, say, in the, within the next 30 to 40 years, and that's making it a, a broad, very broad future, there would be any chance of a two state solution? I would hope so. But you only have to look back a few weeks, two weeks, in fact. We know that Jerusalem has always been the capital of Israel. So all the president of Israel of America has said is, yes, Israel's the capital, we're moving our embassy, which is no different in real terms when in Germany they moved the capital from Bonn to Berlin. And the world didn't go crazy. This is the same Berlin who wanted to murder every Jew in Europe going back 70 years earlier. So all he did is said, we're going to move our, our embassy to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the capital. And there was an international world outcry. That's just on a building. So can you imagine 
if they then create a peace with Jerusalem, either saying Jerusalem is ours in its entirety, when you're going to upset half the population, or let's give half of Jerusalem when you accept the other half. So in answer to your question, Clive, no, I don't. But I, I have to I have to say to you that Jerusalem does belong to the three main religions in the world: Christianity, Judaism, and and Islam. It's important to all three religions, Jerusalem, and therefore should be an open city. I have to believe that there will be peace. I, I don't think I could live in a a kind of a mind space where I didn't believe that there is peace. We just haven't probably found the correct path to it now. But you don't think you'll be still as young as you are now when it oh, happens? Bless you. Well, we'll be middle-aged. You ask for the next 30 or 40 years. I <laughs> hope we can have this chat again in 30 I'll, years' time. I'll be here. Per- personally, <laughs> I don't think there'll be peace either. You don't at all? No, not at all. Let's put it to a vote in this little studio, four of us. I say there won't be. I say there won't be. I say I hope there will be. But that's, I say, that's not an answer. Yeah. Okay. I, well, say, <laughs> I say I actually believe there will be one day. Uh, I won't say right. when. No, mm. but you say within the next 30 years, I can't see it. You really can't? I can't, no. I think there's too many factions against it. On both sides, there's too many factions against it. Well, I'll tell you work. why, Clive, because if the peace comes with concessions... Not, they're not going to meet next week for dinner at the King David, shake hands and say, hi, guys, let's have some peace. So they're going to make very, very difficult concessions. I actually feel sorry for the Prime Minister of Israel. I really do because his whole... The current Prime Minister The current Israel. Prime Minister. I do feel sorry because wow. his entire focus on day-to-day is peace and defence. I do feel... I actually feel sorry. He's not very popular. You may not like him by the look of your face. <laughs> but... I believe that he's a great spokesman outside Israel for the state of Israel. To, to the general world? I believe that. Well, why is um, he not more popular with the general world? Good question. Why is he not? Because I don't think he is a good advocate for anything. I think he's too aggressive. But it's, again, I'm, I didn't vote for him. And so it's difficult, I think, to be judgmental. But would you vote place. for him if you lived in Israel? No, I wouldn't. If you thought this is And also, I have to say, I wish peace was on his mind a little bit more and not all kinds of other stuff. I and think, the, there are Palestinian leaders who do have peace in their mind. I've, I've seen and heard them on television programs and on radio programs in this country. And I've heard them say, we have to have an agreement with Israel. Anyway, there we are. We've discussed it and we've all given our view. And thank you all very much. I'd indeed. love to be wrong, Clive. I well, hope I am. I hope you are too. My thanks to our guests, founder of West End Travel, David Siegel, and comedian Rachel Krieger. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Of course, those details are on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Masorti Synagogue. The righteous as the palm will flourish, as the cedar of Lebanon will grow. It is a known verse from Psalms. There are many trees and bushes that appear in the Bible as metaphors of human characteristics. In this verse, the palm 
symbolized the righteous because their actions give many fruits, many students, and therefore influence their surroundings. The cedar is tall, a symbol of physical strength. Therefore, it is even harder to understand why God reveals himself to Moses on a simple bush and did not choose something more impressive, a tall cedar, something with nice flowers. The rabbis gave us a few different answers to this question. For Rashi, the bush is a symbol that God will always be with us in difficult moments. As the bush is found everywhere, He, God, will be everywhere to support us. The fire can symbolize the hardships waiting for us in the way. Personally, I like most the answer of Rava Yeshua ben Karcha in the Midrash Bereshit Rava. He understood that the bush teaches us about the humility that every person has to have in order to feel the presence of God in the world. It is easier to feel the power of the Creator in front of a wonderful natural view, a gigantic tree, the majestic mountains. However, God, the Creator of the whole world, reveals Himself on the simple bush to teach that He is also there. Everywhere and in every moment, it is possible to feel His presence in the world. Maybe the merit of Moses was to be able to see and find his God in the simple bush, maybe because of he being himself a humble man. May we be conscious of the presence of God in the world, his Shekhinah, divine presence, filling every place. May we be as humble as Moses, and maybe also capable to see God in the simple and mundane. Our lives will receive a special meaning because of this. Listening to Rabbi Evan David there, it does make you sit back and and think, what is your understanding of the Almighty? And I do personally believe that that's a very, it's a very private belief system and one that probably shouldn't necessarily be shared. I think what I would be prepared to say on radio though, and I think I've said before on this program anyway, is that I believe that the Almighty is a force for positivity You can't go blaming the Almighty when something bad happens. You turn to the Almighty in times of trouble in a bid to try and help you through some of the darker times in life. Anyway, enough said about that. Thank you all the same to Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests. We have to thank Andrew Kaufman, MBE, the chairman of the AJR, telling us about receiving an MBE in the New Year's Honours list. To Lynn Julius, author of Uprooted, which looks at Jews who've had to flee Arab countries. Thank you to Josh Adley, one of the founders of the Linky Initiative, telling us how he and his colleagues plan to help the homeless this winter. And of course, to all of our other contributors and to you at home for listening and we mustn't forget the team including our producers tony honickberg sue greenberg and harley baptiste 
Don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>